Welcome to the OK Computer podcast takeover of the On The Tape feed. OK Computer is the latest offering for risk reversal media. We're going to cover all things tech, public and private markets, the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3. We have this amazing group of co-hosts and contributors. This is going to be in the On The Tape feed for a short period of time. So please follow OK Computer in your podcast stores so you get new episodes every Wednesday on your phone. Thanks. Okay, I'm Dan Nath, and I am joined by Rick Heitzman of First Mark Capital. This is OK Computer. We got a lot of stuff to cover today. I have a great interview with a good friend of mine, Dan Charan of Gutter Capital. But before that, Rick and I are going to hit a whole host of topics. We're going to talk about inflation, what it means for public and private tech, which seem to be bearing the brunt on the valuation side of the increased rates and the Fed signaling about how they attempt to tamp down inflation. We're going to talk about some tech luminaries on Twitter, of course, weighing in on trust in institutions. And of course, Elon, and what is he really trying to get at with Twitter? We got a lot more to go over. Rick might give us a little preview of what his 76ers might be able to do in the NBA playoffs. He likes their center there. So Rick, how the heck are you? I'm doing well. Things are good. It's a sunny day in New York City. Spring has sprung. It's the best time of year here. Markets are not doing well, but people seem to have smiles on their face. I will tell you this. It's always sunny in your hometown of Philadelphia, where I spent a weekend. Yes, it is. All right. Let's talk about the CPI print, eight and a half percent for March. And these are 40-year high readings. And one of the things that pundits, that would be me, or investors, that would be you, in the private markets, we're not spending a lot of time thinking about inflation. But here's the thing. We often spend a lot of time talking about interest rates. And the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Fed, have signaled that they will raise interest rates aggressively to battle runaway inflation. And so my question to you here is that it's obviously rattled the stock market this year and all the uncertainty with the geopolitical stuff and some of the things that we've seen, the components of inflation. So we're seeing wage growth and that might help offset some of those inflationary pressures, but some of the stuff is sticky and some of the stuff with all the uncertainty is here to stay, which is making it a bit of a mess in the public markets. Private markets, as we've talked about this, you've suggested six to nine month lag. I'm just thinking, is inflation on the tip of VC's tongues the way it is a lot of public market investors right now? Not in a direct way, but you already outlined why. You follow the bouncing ball, high inflation, Fed raises rates, Fed raises rates, jacks up the discount rate. Investors flee to profitable companies. Therefore, they get out of innovative companies that oftentimes have a burn and take longer to get profitable, and therefore tech and growth falls out of favor. That's the daisy chain of the pain that inflation causes for startups and growth investors. So what you've seen is money being free two years ago, the Fed printing money, buying everything they could, uh, effectively free, and you saw an out-of-control market because of that. And because there was no discount rate, companies, especially SaaS stocks, who have long tails of a terminal value, valuations grow tremendously. And now not only are people saying, or the Fed saying specifically, money's not free, but it's going to be a lot more expensive very quickly. And we don't know when it's going to stop being expensive. So everybody runs in the other direction away from the startup ecosystem. 
So when you talk about some of these high growth names that are in public markets right now, they've obviously borne the brunt of some of the multiple compression. And this started really a year ago. And at the time, inflation was running hot. We were still in the pandemic for all intents and purposes. And I think a lot of investors could probably have looked out three to six or nine months and said the pandemic was going to be in the rearview mirror, but they kind of been selling in waves for quarters now. And so you indicated that the public to private market lag is usually six to nine months. We talked a couple of weeks ago, you and I, about some of the marks that are starting to happen. Are there pockets of risk out there? Are there pockets of much overvalued portfolios that need to be marked down that might have some knock-on effects in the public markets? Because the advent of all the crossover investors, these growth investors, sometimes they sell what they can if they're faced with redemptions. Now, most VC funds won't have redemptions the way some growth or crossover funds might have. So I'm just curious, is that something that we might hear about more and more in 2022? You're not seeing, but you are seeing, I think you saw a little bit in Q4, a couple of weeks away from getting Q1 numbers out there. And usually in the private markets, you really only mark to market and distribute those values to your investors on a quarterly basis. So all the pain in the fourth quarter, which wasn't that much, are the last numbers people have. Now you're going to see, probably in about a month or so, hey, here's Q1 numbers, and they're down further. That might create a little bit of a crisis of confidence because you're going to see your denominator has decreased, especially if you're a technology investor as your public portfolio has shrunk. And then your numerator, although still high, probably has decreased as folks have started to write down their portfolios. So you're going to lose a lot of confidence if you're a multi-strategy player and you're looking at, maybe I started to dip my toe in tech and maybe I realized that might not be a right long-term play or there might be something else to do. So I think you're seeing some of these marks coming home and you're starting to see people react to a right-sized portfolio. Yeah. And so you get my point. Let's just think about a company like SoftBank, which has some massive investments in some very highly valued private companies. And they also have huge stakes in public markets. And you're seeing some of those private companies, if they were to get a mark and they have entities that have redemptions, you might sell the things that you can. Do you understand what I mean by that? Yeah. In general, you don't have redemptions. SoftBank might be an aberration. There's some hedge funds that have sleeves with privates that maybe they're seeing redemptions based on their both public and privates being down. We haven't seen panic selling yet. And usually that's one of the ends of the capitulation. People can't hold on that much longer. They either have liquidity issues or redemption issues, and therefore they capitulate at the end. We haven't seen that yet. We've actually seen probably a little bit of the opposite of you kind of bouncing around a bottom for long enough that people might be adjusting to this being the new normal and having confidence to get their checkbooks back out. Well, it's funny. One of the things that I think that the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, are masking a lot of this really disgusting performance by hundreds of stocks in the public markets that are down 50, 60, 70%. And the reason I bring that up is that a lot of those companies are public comp to a lot of companies in the private markets. And if you're looking at the S&P 500, after everything we went through in Q1, and it's only down 8% on the year after being up 26% last year, and you have a NASDAQ that's filled with a lot of these high growth companies that's only down 15%, you say to yourself, ah, 
the world's okay. It's not a disaster here. We're in the middle of a war. We're still dealing with fits and starts of a pandemic. We know that global supply chains have been absolutely decimated. There's a move towards globalization. It's the first time the Fed has been in a rate hiking cycle in more than three years, and they're signaling that it's going to be aggressive because we're seeing 40-year highs in inflation. You'd say to yourself, oh, the stock market's hanging in there. But if you're a stock picker, it's an absolute disaster. And the volatility that you're seeing, a lot of people were calling for the end of the bear market. This was just a few weeks ago. And here we are. There are no shortage of stocks. There are things that we use every day that are either apps on our phone or things on our computer that help us do what we're doing or get us from A to Z or this and that, whatever, that had 40, 50% rallies off of the lows just a month ago after being down 50, 60%. Now, look like they're going to retest last month's lows. And I'll just tell you this from somebody who came up in this business in a protracted bear market, specifically in the tech world, I will tell you when they go through the lows, Rick, I think all hell breaks loose. And then you finally see those handful of names that are keeping the S&P and the NASDAQ levitating. They kind of join in there. Yeah, that's the last of the capitulation. As our friend Gavin Baker say when they kill the generals, that's when the war is over. So you haven't seen much capitulation from the FANG. You've seen multiple compression a little bit, but you haven't seen anyone do anything which call into question the business model. And I think that would be the last shoe to drop if it comes. Yeah. And I guess the issue there is a matter of time. Might we bang around at some point if the S&P were to go down at least 20%, it might not just V reverse back. One of the reasons why is because what the Fed is doing. Over the last 10 years, when the Fed wasn't hiking, when the market would come in, the Fed had the ability just to talk more dovish and people would go back into the stock market because it was the only game in town. You have the ability to take a little pressure, little pressure release valve on the market. And that was enough through a few choice words. And I think that knowing that that release valve was there gave people the ability to have a little bit more confidence in a world where you don't know how many hikes and you don't know how big those hikes are going to be. There's a lot more uncertainty. I'll just say this is last time the Fed was hiking rates, it was in 2018. And we had a bit of a growth scare at the end of 2018. And the S&P 500 went down 20% in a straight line. And what did the Fed do? They basically had a massive dovish pivot and the stock market ricocheted back. I just don't think because of inflation of where it is, they have the ability to do that. Now, that being said, there's lots of calls today seeing that 8.5% CPI reading that we might have hit peak inflation. So the Fed might have done what they needed to do, at least convincing market participants that they were going to raise aggressively, which might set up for their ability to get a bit more dovish in the back half of the year if the economy does slow. Because one of the issues that you would have to assume is that maybe they hike so aggressively, they put us into a recession. But given where we are and the uncertainty with what's going on with Russia, Ukraine, the Chinese, to me, I think the likelihood of a recession is great. And they do need to get themselves in a position where they could get more dovish. I completely agree. The Fed, you don't want them to overcorrect. And it's a world of people are violently overcorrecting, especially there's so many things. I was talking to a large, long only player today, and he said, I don't know how people can even speculate because there's so many things happening now that never happened before. You're coming out of a pandemic. You're seeing historic lows in unemployment, resignation. So the labor market's all screwed up. The healthcare market's all screwed up. You know, media whispering about World War III. So all these things have compounding risk 
and no one's sure. You can't glean this out of speculative numbers about what's going to happen. So the key thing is to be flexible and a violent overcorrection by the Fed would be the opposite. I agree with that. So my answer to people is say, what do I do when the market's down 20 some percent? You think we've taken out the bulk of the excess. And my answer, Rick, is really simple. And you're going to start hearing a lot on OK Computer. Qs and twos. The QQQ, the NASDAQ 100, we know five or six of those names make up 50% of the weight. Those companies will not be displaced in any way, shape, or form. They'd probably come out of, let's say, a recession if that were to happen at the back half of this year or early next year, probably stronger. And the other one are twos because the two-year treasury, in my opinion, given the size of the Fed's balance sheet, interest rates are never going up meaningfully and we will have a dovish pivot. So those two, there's your balanced portfolio. All right, let's move into something else. And this is one where I'd love to get your take here, man, because a couple tweets this morning got me a little tweaked. Normal day for you. Yeah, well, normal day. Well, this one was from Jack Dorsey yesterday. He quote tweeted a CNBC story that said White House expects inflation to be extraordinarily elevated in new report. So that's talking about this morning's CPI report. This is Tuesday. And his comment is every administration, Republican, or Democrat has an opportunity to build trust with the public. Instead, every single time they choose deception and zero accountability, it's not the party, it's the system. And then another one from a former OK Computer guest and a friend of yours, Alexis Ohanian of 776. And this is far less nefarious, but I just thought it was kind of interesting. Alexis tweeted this morning, the story of inflation now announced at 8.5% as discussed by my Twitter feed. And then in parentheses, he says, money printing goes burr versus institutions, media, government, experts all saying nothing to see here over the last couple of years has been staggering. And I'm not sure how trust gets recovered. So here's two big thought leaders here, two very successful founders. Obviously, Alexis is an amazing investor. Also, Jack is created two of the most prolific, one in social media and one in financial services, centralized platforms here. But they're both talking about distrust here. Now, both are big crypto evangelists, to be very clear. So it kind of fits their narrative. But then you see Andreessen, though, all day long, just shitposting on Twitter, basically calling into question the powers that be. I'm just curious, what's your take on this? Because it really seems like there's something's building here. We've talked about this, and I think you've had a great thesis for a long time of, is the distrust of institutions just falling apart? Whether it's Congress and whatever side of the aisle you're on, there's 80-year-old people who seem to be out of touch with what's going on in the world, making broadly speculative comments or saying nothing that really resonates with the issues and the way that real people feel and act every day. And I think whether it's from a business side or whether it's from a political side, folks don't feel like those leaders are in touch with us. They don't feel like the governors, even those that are elected, are really in touch with the issues that are happening today. And it's an age-related issue. It's just on a day-to-day basis. Are those folks like me? And I think hopefully this will create a generational transition from where the baby boomers who largely in control for the last 50 or so years will transition to our generation or maybe even a generation younger than us that looks and feels a lot more like America. Let's segue a little bit to somebody who's clearly anti-establishment is Elon Musk and this whole saga over the last week and a half or so, where he's obviously been very critical 
of the product. He took a 9.2% stake, spending over $2.6 billion. That was, I think, about 1% of his net worth. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting, I'd love to get your take on this because he announces the stake. The next day, Parag Agarwal, the CEO of the company, offers him a board seat. A few days later, he declines it. There might be a bunch of technical reasons. And I want to ask you, as somebody who's been on both private and public boards, what your take is on this. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this whole saga back and forth, Rick, is that not once did Elon suggest that this was a great investment. When activists get involved with stocks, they usually have an agenda. And the whole idea is to increase shareholder value. All the criticisms that he had, all the Twitter polls that he was doing about Twitter really seemed to be about a product that he's obsessed with, that he uses for enjoyment, and that he wants to be better at or wants it to be better. And then he also wants to serve the greater good supposedly better. But from your take here, not as much as investor, because again, he never laid out any good reasons. He's very different. All the activists that you were talking about, and you put him in a bucket with going back years from the Kravitz and icons of the world, it was very clear their incentive was to make money. I want the business to change. Either I want them to repurchase stock or not repurchase stock or sell the company or buy another company because I think that'll drive the share price up and that'll make me money. I think Elon's goal here is status. I want to stay in the news. I want to be able to talk about the echo chamber of Twitter. Twitter loves to talk about Twitter. How do you get more status on Twitter? You start talking about Twitter. The best way to talk about it is, hey, I bought a bunch of Twitter and I'm going to make some changes. I'm going to mix it up. He goes back to being in the A block for every media outlet for the last couple of days. So mission accomplished from his PR perspective, especially public boards. It's a lot of administration, not a lot of doing although it's a lot of work and I've served on a lot of public boards that have been good, but it doesn't seem to suit his needs of governance, audit committees, et cetera. I think he achieved all he wanted to achieve of getting back in the conversation and exhibiting influence. And it's something we've seen over the last cycle. Every major billionaire wants to have media influence. And whether that's Benioff in his media purchases, Bezos in the Washington Post, Elon's just following that path and keeping in the news and making sure he stays relevant and influential. Yeah, I think Elon just needs a hug, to be very honest with you, because I just look at it and just say the stock has been a shit investment literally from the moment it went public in 2013. And it went public at, I think, 27 bucks and traded very near what had been an all-time high until very recently at 70 and crashed soon after that. And so the stock was trading in the low 30s when he started accumulating it earlier in the year. And again, what you and I might think is a small position is a 9% position in Twitter that he takes for shits and giggles. He also knows that the moment in which he announces that investment, that it's going to be marked up 10, 20, whatever percent. Well, here's the problem you have right now. If you're an investor and you love Elon and you've made a lot of money with Elon in Dogecoin and in Tesla and everything like that, all this other crap is a sideshow. And so they announced his holdings. Stock was trading around 39 and a half. It went to about 54 about a week ago. And here it is. It's filling in that gap. It literally went from 39 and a half to the opening tick the next day that was about 40 eight dollars and now it's at 44 and a half and it feels like i don't know man maybe the guy's selling it maybe he got bored maybe he's like you know what i've made a half a billion dollars and he's moving on he could be 
If his goal was to make a half a billion dollars and to be in the A block for a week, mission accomplished. He could be moving on. It's definitely not to be on the audit committee and governance committee of the Twitter board. That's the long-term thing. You know, he's not agitating for them to sell themselves. He's not agitating for anything else. The thing he did agitate for that I really liked as a Twitter power user is product evolution. Part of the reason that Twitter's not moved is because it's a really hard product for normal people to use. So there's about a couple hundred million people in the world who use it quite frequently. There's even a smaller percent like you and I who use it every day. And every normal person around us wonders why we go to this place every day where people are just yelling at each other for no reason. And unless you can change that product to soften its shell and make it more usable, it's going to be a niche product because it's hard to use and kind of yelly. So Twitter's going to be stuck in that valuation trap. And some of the things, and whether it's an edit button, whether it's ways to understand structure and create channels or things that a normal person would use a tech product would be helpful. And I hope that those polls he ran and the things he's agitating for actually come to pass for everyone's benefit. Yeah, I think your point, though, is that there's just a really small group of people who are power users of it. And I think he's tried to make that point. And I'm not sure an edit button changes that. There's 330 million monthly active users. When you think about the fact that Facebook has nearly 3 billion and monetizes at a much higher rate, I'm not telling you I'm a fan of their products whatsoever. And it also hasn't grown. A certain number of Americans, which has been generally the same, For about the past five years, and if you're in VC, if you're in financial markets, if you're in media, there's a couple different places where we've managed to create some echo chambers on Twitter. But if you're a normal out there, outside of those industries that care about the echo chambers, you haven't been on, you might have tried it, you decided it wasn't for you, and you're not going back. Let's talk a little bit, Rick. You mentioned earlier about the investment environment and how you're thinking about it a little bit. Talking to some friends in VC, they would say that raising capital was pretty plentiful, or at least the environment for it in 2021. There were a bunch of exits, as you also mentioned a little bit. It seems like things have slowed up just a little bit. I want to get a sense of where you think things are. What makes you confident that at some point a window will open for private companies to come to public markets? And then I think the most important question, why the hell do they want to come to public markets? That's always been the question. And that's been mainly the question. I'll start there. Of the last couple of dozen years that coming at 20 years ago when Sarbanes-Oxley was put into place, it became much more difficult and much more expensive to go public. And I was an executive at the time and taking my company public. And it was like, God, damn, this is really hard and this is really expensive. I got to pay somebody else and these other accountants and these other guys. So he said, all right, you got to be bigger to get public now because you have to be able to afford this tax on you for regulatory reasons. And then that became an ongoing thing of you have to get bigger to be able to afford the tax. Jobs Act came into play to try and mitigate some of those things. It really didn't affect the cost of the tax. It enabled confidential filings and some other things that made it easier to go public. And then it became cool to stay private. If you think about Zuckerberg, who famously said, now that he's been a public market CEO for 10 years, he might have agreed with his former self of, I don't want to ever go public. Being public sucks. I don't want to do that. And that became a mantra in Silicon Valley. And we had companies that were growing tremendously, but stayed private years longer than what they might have needed to do from a milestone perspective and said, going public sucks. I don't want to do that. And then probably for the second half of 20 and all of 21, 
that dialogue turned and it was all the traditional reasons to go public. Your cost of capital is lower. You're generating liquidity for yourself, your employees, your early investors. Get in. The water's fine, especially when valuations are high. Now, all of a sudden, the valuations aren't as high. All the scrutiny, which you might have escaped last year because money was free, and therefore, it was still the, the private company Love Fest continued in the public markets without much scrutiny. And now, as cost of capital increases, which has been a thematic for us over the last year, that we saw this happening. We saw that money wasn't going to stay free forever. Cost of capital was going to increase. The revenge of diligence, the return of the business model, all of our prior episodes were saying, hey, now there's going to be scrutiny as a public company CEO. What's your margin structure? How are you improving those margins? How are you continuing to grow? If you're a Twitter and you can't grow your user base, how are you increasing your ARPU? And so now all the scrutiny, people are saying, hey, this sucks. On a day-to-day basis, I'm in a public spotlight and there's a ton of scrutiny. Do I want to go public? That's the conversation going around. One thing I'd say, Rick, is kind of interesting. In January, I remember Toma Bravo raised a $20 billion buyout fund. It was specifically geared towards tech. And you know what they've done over the last month? They bought $20 billion worth of companies. They bought Anaplan, and then they bought, earlier this week, they announced to buy SailPoint for nearly $7 billion in the cybersecurity space. P.E., could really have a field day in this environment because they've raised a shit ton of money. They're starting to see it. Vista, Toma Bravo, they raised all that money with the expectation that this day would come, that valuations would reset, that the pendulum would swing back too far, and there'd be a huge opportunity for strategic buyers. So especially folks who have deep technology experience of the Vistas and the insights of the world this has kind of moved into their territory. Some people are looking at this of sign of, hey, we're hitting a bottom where Toma Bravo are buying a company, SailPoint, which I think they'd owned previously and therefore knew really well. Knowing it really well, tracking the public markets and willing to pay a 50% premium showed that maybe the public markets overcorrected on that stock price. Dotto just sold yesterday or the day before to a consortium. So you're seeing private companies of all types, especially SaaS companies with great recurring revenue, the PE shops are all over. Yeah. It'll be interesting also to see if we just see some strategic M&A, definitely a publicly traded companies who've been buying back their stock hand over fist and have tremendous access to raising capital. And they still do, but they may just not want to raise it at these rates and they've done it. And maybe it's just the opportunity to say, eh, I can buy my stock that I think is cheap, or I can spend my way out of whatever recession might be coming and look for some cheap valuations and stuff that we might've looked at a couple of years ago, but the valuations didn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. And they're a bit more rational now. I think it's if you own a company, if you're at a director or if you're involved in a public company who three years ago were uncertain because of COVID, then you were uncertain because the prices were too high. Now you're uncertain because the prices are too low and you haven't been able to come up with an idea other than buying your own stock, you should be replaced. There's been five or six different micro environments that you should have strategic alternatives, whether they be internal projects or external M&A, that you have to be sitting there waiting, saying, when the market's going to come to me, either when my stock goes up or their stock goes down, I believe I could be strategically aggressive. And if you've been sitting on your hands, pontificating about the broader markets or buying back your own stock, you've been strategically asleep at the wheel. 
All right, let me ask you this. So you've been a VC for 20 years. You started First Mark nearly 20 years ago, and you have plenty of experience watching companies that you've owned on a private basis enter the public markets, and you keep an eye on the public markets. I suspect your expertise, you would say, is in private markets and identifying great founders who are going to create great businesses. They're going to turn into great investments. Do you look at a stock market like we're in right now, where there's probably dozens of companies that you could look at that you love, that you think are just mispriced? Over the last five years, we've seen plenty of public investors move into this crossover format. Do you think there'll ever be a chance where a guy like you raises a fund to invest in public markets, really leveraging and flexing a little bit on your knowledge of these private markets and the way that you've seen these companies evolve. I'm just curious, is that something we're likely to see if we were to have a NASDAQ that were to go down, let's say, precipitously at some point in 2022? I'm seeing a lot of people that I respect a lot do that. The crossover investors was always the public market investors going back to the private markets. You're starting to see crossover investors go from the private markets to the public markets. The clear entry point is pipes. It looks a little bit more like a private investment. You have more time to do diligence. You probably have access to teams in a way that isn't readily available for anyone. So that's usually the entry point. Obviously, a nice siren song around, hey, can I get into the public markets? I really know this company or I really know this sector as well as anyone. For us at this point, I believe there's only so many things you could do well and focus on prioritization are the key to success. We always tell our investors at our annual meeting, it tends to be a boring annual meeting because we know what we're really good at and we're just continuing to do that. And we're going to continue to build great companies doing that. But yeah, it's always fun to speculate. It's always fun to either have your virtualized portfolio or a little something in your PA where you think, hey, of course, this company is a screaming buyer or a screaming sell. All right, Rick, we covered a lot of ground, but one thing we did not cover, I was in your hometown of Philly over the weekend and I found myself at a Sixers game. Lucky you. I know. I went to a Sixers game with you in January with a group of people that I think you met most of them online. Oh, there are a lot of Twitter friends. So all the process trusters. All right, talk to me because I will tell you this. There was lots of MVP chance in there. The regular season, the NBA is coming to a close. The Sixers had a great season. Talk to me about Embiid. Talk to me about the Sixers' chances here and what's going to happen over the next couple months in the NBA playoffs. So yeah, it's a great group of people, process trusters all over the world. We have a little group called the Process Trusters of New York. A lot of people that are in tech, in media, and love the Sixers and love Philadelphia sports. So there's a guy, Joel Embiid, and the Sixers basically took it down to the studs and were trying to rebuild the team for a championship. A guy named Sam Hinkie, who's a great guy and a great investor, drafted Joel Embiid. He couldn't play for his first two years because he was injured. And a lot of skeptics said he'll never play it. It was a terrible draft pick. He worked hard. He got from here to there. He's come back. He's led the league in scoring this year. The first center to lead the league in scoring in 40 years. Also the first non-American player. So as an immigrant leading the league in scoring. And everyone, most smart people think he should be the MVP this year. Most smart people who hail from Philadelphia, it sounds like. Little word done, smart and hailing from Philly. Oh, come on, man. I will tell you this is that if he is in the paint and on defense and you have some sort of lazy way that you're trying to get the ball into the hoop, he just swats it out of there. He's an incredible athlete. He's great on social media. He's fantastic and one of the most fun athletes to root for. 
He's fun to watch. All right. Well, I'm rooting for MVP. I'm rooting for your Sixers. I trust the process. I don't know if I've been accepted into that group here, but it's a multi-year process, but you've gotten through a couple of gates. I'm rooting for it. All right, Rick. Thanks, man, for all your insight today. And everyone stick around when we come back. My friend, Dan Turan of Gutter Capital. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. Dan Turan is the co-founder and managing partner of Gutter Capital, a New York City-based venture capital firm. Dan also founded Managed by Q, a platform for workplace teams, which was acquired by WeWork in 2019. Following the acquisition, Dan served as head of corporate development and ventures at WeWork. Prior to founding Managed by Q, Dan was a partner at venture development firm Prehype. All right, Dan P. Turan, as my partner Guy Adami refers to you, uh, bear market Matt Damon. Welcome to OK Computer. Thanks for being here, buddy. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. First of all, you've probably been on a podcast before I've been on a podcast. You were kind of like one of those tech folks. You had a medium. You probably were like an early Twitter guy. You were doing some podcasting before it was cool in a way. Did you grow up with these sorts of technologies a little bit? I don't know that I was particularly early to those things, but I would say around when we started Managed by Q, so like 2013, 2014, I had an obligation to be present in the conversation. You did. you did. And if you Google Dan Turan, you will find plenty of pictures of him with like his mic on his head in front of a tech crutch sign or something like that. So you were like full on in the early part of your entrepreneurial career. You were doing the conference circuit a little bit too. What do you think of those guys? I love doing those things. And it feels like because the pandemic put two and a half years of distance between IRL sort of stuff. But when you see some sort of fundraise, this new unicorn, this, that, they'll show some picture from like five five years ago at like all those tech conferences with those little mics on their heads. What do you think of those? I think douchey. I'm just curious. What's your take on that? I would say I'm glad I got it out of my system at a young age. I mean, it was like, it felt like the right thing to be doing at the time. And and I'm sure that it was. Did you feel special because you were asked to do those things? Oh, I felt very special. Yeah. And you probably were more active writing back then. Like a VC told you, you have to have a medium and you have to have a presence on Twitter. I've always written a lot. I like to write. But yeah, it would not be a stretch to say that I had an inflated sense of self-importance on the conference circuit and the thought leadership. And it's really nice to be a has-been and not have to worry about that stuff anymore. (laughs) I talked to, and I know you advise a lot of young founders, and you've been doing that for a while. And when I came up in my business, in the financial world, it was really frowned upon to have too much of a outwardly facing sort of persona in a way. And a lot of hedge fund managers, literally, they had pictures of them when they'd write stories in the journal from like 15 years prior. I think the script has kind of flipped in a way. And I think a lot of young founders realize that they can create brands being thought leaders and having a presence online. Yeah. I mean, I think some people do it to their detriment and put it ahead of growing the business. But I do think that if you are a young founder, CEO, no one is going to tell your story for you. And so it's very important to have a little bit of a cultivated leadership story of why you and why people should come work for you, why people should give you capital, why customers should want to work for you. No one's going to do that for you. I think if it's in service of the business, it's a good use of time. I think if it's vanity, it's not. And so when I see people attending lots of conferences or writing lots or spending all day on Twitter and they fundamentally don't have product market fit in their business, I would say not such a good use of time. Fair enough. That makes total sense. All right, let's take a step back to that period when you were on stages and you were giving these talks. You had just started a company managed by Q. 
What was your founder's journey? I know that you were at an incubation shop here in New York City. How were you drawn to becoming an entrepreneur or was there another path for you out of school? I know you went to the hop, as we call it, in the lax world, Johns Hopkins. Yeah, I mean, I came to work in tech after I'd exhausted all their possibilities. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, I just cycled through a lot of things quickly. I went to school for international politics and economics with a concentration in urban public policy. I was working as a community organizer in Baltimore and one of the oldest nonprofits in the city on housing advocacy, transit advocacy. And then right after school, I worked in local politics in Baltimore City, ran an ill-fated state senate campaign. Really? Uh, packed up my bags. How old, wait, how old were you when you did that? I was like 20 and turned 21. I graduated from Hopkins year early. Were you inspired by all the inner workings of Baltimore politics from watching The Wire? Was that the inspiration? I would say I was uninspired okay. by all the inner workings of Baltimore politics by working in Baltimore politics. And then I moved to New York. I, I was fortunate to get a job at a law firm working with Aaron Brockovich doing environmental Stop. contamination yes, cases. Yes, yes, yes. The Aaron Brockovich? Yeah, the Aaron Brockovich. He consulted for a New York law firm. And it was a really cool opportunity. Continues to be, it may surprise you to learn, environmental contamination cases similar to her big case all over the country. And she was a great spokesperson to show up and give a town hall meeting about how the community actually did have options. And then my job was to make sure people showed up, make sure they signed retainers. Then it would get handed over to the attorneys who'd work on the case. So I did that for a year by a combination of not really wanting to take the LSAT and also being a little bit disillusioned at how slow things moved in the courts. I sort of made the decision that I wanted to work in a startup. I had friends that were doing it and I was charmed by how quickly you could actually see the impact of your work. And yeah, I basically just started cold emailing founders. That was almost 10 years ago, right? There was a heavy East Coast, West Coast thing. I mean, Silicon Valley was kind of popping off, if you think about it. Mark Andreessen had just penned his software is eating the world. It really felt like Silicon Valley was the epicenter of the tech world at the time. But there was this really quietly growing vibe here in New York City. You literally could keep track of every company that had raised money in New York, and I did, and I emailed all of them. You know from our mutual friend, Joe Marchese. He's on the long list of first-generation New York City founders that did not hire me. I was fortunate to get a job at a startup called Artsicle, which is long defunct. It was a marketplace for emerging artists, and that was sort of where I cut my teeth. Then from there, I went to a firm called Prehype, which is one of the first venture studios in New York. Really great group of product thinkers. Some of the companies that have come out there since. So BarkBox was the first one. Love BarkBox. Customer. Great company. Leaf started a company called Public, which is a social trading app. Yeah. Saman, who was my co-founder managed by Q, started Row. Lots of good stuff coming out of there. I left with Saman in 2014 to start managed by Q. This is the one thing that's kind of fascinating about young founders is like you absolutely have nothing to lose at that point. Yeah, you had four years, in your case, three years invested in college, maybe some student loans. But when you're thinking about the world and how all of these businesses are being transformed by young, smart founders, it's probably not a huge leap, is it, at that point? You're like, hey, let's go start a company, raise some capital and see what happens. If it fails, it fails. We move on. Nothing was that scary back then because I hadn't really done anything. I envy young people, young founders. You have very little to lose when you have no overhead and honestly no success. What's the worst you could do is continue to be unsuccessful. I know the answer to this, but like a good lawyer, I'm going to ask a question I know the answer to. Where were you living at the time? To keep my burn low, I qualified and moved into low-income, income-restricted housing in South Williamsburg, where I actually continued to live until right after we sold the company to WeWork, probably the cheapest apartment transacted. And whenever I moved in there in 2012, I think my mortgage was $630, something like that. All right, so you started Managed by Q. 
in 2014. You just said you sold it in 2019. Just give the listener a little bit. What was that business and how did it transform over five years? And what was the culmination of this sale to, at the time, was literally one of the hottest and largest private companies in the world we were. It was a crazy journey. I joke that we literally iterated through every single business model until we found one that worked. So we started out tech-enabled services. We employed cleaners and handymen, and we would install an iPad in your office that controlled the service, and we would actually employ the people. But you actually, managed by Q, employed the people. Yeah, we employed up to 1,000 people at the peak. So we built a pretty large national service company. And over time, we built software to manage the services. Then a few years into the journey, we had experimented with a marketplace model by bringing on services that we couldn't perform ourselves. So, you know, IT, more heavy construction. So this was like on-demand workers or ish? Not quite on-demand. Someone would submit a request for a quote. They'd get multiple quotes. So if you're doing like an IT project, you don't need someone to show up in 10 minutes. You need the right person to do the job. So it was much more like quote-driven. Enterprises are, at least in most cases, are more planned in sort of the work they're doing in the office. And if it's like cleaning, you don't need an on-demand cleaner. You know that you have a regular cleaning schedule. So a few years into the business, we transitioned the entire service business to be a marketplace. So we found some great partners of ours who agreed to kind of maintain the same employment standards that we had with our cleaners and were able to transition those employees. We had given them equity in the business. And so when we sold, there were still cleaners. All right. So what was the motivation of that? I mean, at the time, founders are always generally really tight with that equity. And so reserve for upper echelon management sort of thing. So this was across the entire company that you had an equity pool? Yeah. I mean, we felt like they were our partners in building the business and they deserve to have some upside. We obviously thought it would be motivating to them. I think You get mixed answers when you actually study the effectiveness of equity on an hourly employee population. But we had a great advisor who had built the program at Starbucks, and they helped us to design ours. And also, it was motivating to our team. We wanted to do the right thing by our employees, and we wanted it to be a big outcome for everyone and not just the people that sat at a desk. And I would say it was one of the things that I was most proud of when we sold was the impact we had on hundreds of people's lives that had helped us to build the business. That's pretty cool. And so what was that like when you started the company? Like you said, expectations were very low, but you reached different milestones over the course of it. You had, it sounds like a few pivots, if you will, and you built a business that obviously when founders start, there's a couple exits, right? You can go out of business the bad way, the strategic M&A, and then there's just the exit of building a company with a view towards being a publicly traded company at some point. Selling the company within five years of founding, you were still in your 20s at the time. What was that like, knowing that you basically had options, you could continue to move on? And when you think about it, I know you sold to a company that had a very difficult time in 2019. And obviously, during the pandemic, you couldn't have foreseen that. Your business would have had a tough time, I'm assuming, during that. And so I'm just curious, reflecting now on that sale, it was kind of fortuitous, would you say? We were very fortunate to sell the business when we did and at the price that we did. And, you know, in a lot of ways, WeWork was a great partner until they weren't. And I think circumstances changed very quickly for Adam and the management there and could argue whether or not they deserved what they got. But the reality was until that happened, we were executing the plan that we had agreed to. So I feel like we made the right decision at the time. And to your point, I think it would have been hard for our business to survive the pandemic if we hadn't sold when we did. Yeah, which is pretty crazy. I hope Matt Damon plays you in We Crashed here. So I'm going to have to check that out on Hulu to see what happens here. All right. So at the time, though, while you were still managed by Q and you were doing corp dev at WeWork in 2019, you were also doing a lot of angel investing and advising. And what was the thing that drew you there? You'd said that you had an advisor from Starbucks who 
helped you kind of consider your plan. Talk to me first about were there some mentors during that whole process when you're building Managed by Q and some of your takeaways, because a lot of VCs who listen, we have a lot of founders who listen. What are some of the takeaways about mentorship and advising? The one thing that stood out to me who stands out in memory as sort of the best advisors along the way, Scott Belsky was probably one of the most meaningful. He is the busiest person who was on our cap table. And when push came to shove, he had been through an acquisition with Adobe and his story ended very differently. He's now chief product officer there. He was incredibly helpful, available, supportive. And I think if anything, it was a model for me to always keep in mind that it doesn't really matter how busy you are. It doesn't take that much of your time to be really present for people when it really counts. Sometimes you need someone like Scott tell you to get up off the mat and start throwing punches to like stay in the game in a negotiation, which is very much what he did for me. And then, yeah, after we sold the business, we had been angel investing. So I have a partner, James Gettinger. We went to college together. We actually played rugby together at Hopkins. Then we moved to New York and played for New York Rugby Club together. We started angel investing together five years ago. And it was sort of like this happy coincidence that James had a fair amount of capital. He had found a lot of success as a professional gambler. And I had a lot of access. I was getting hit up by founders with help fundraising all the time. I had investors that wanted me to help some of their founders. And so we kind of put those two together and started investing. And yeah, over the last five years, built a portfolio of about 100 businesses that we had personally done angel investments to. And when I left WeWork in 2019, it was abrupt. So I was like a little bit of a man without a country. And I think having all these founders who needed help were happy to take my help. It kind of gave me something to do. All right, let's talk about James for one second, though, because I met James shortly after you and I met because you're like, listen, you're like a public markets guy. You're kind of into some of this crypto stuff. And you're like, my partner in the angel investing, you guys had not formalized anything. You just had been investing together. And I'm assuming you were more of the advisor in the relationship. He was the capital and he was also maybe looking at some of these businesses with a more quantitative bent. You were maybe a bit more of the qualitative bent, which actually makes you guys the perfect partnership. You were saying to me at the time, this guy, it was a crypto winter then. And you're like, James has developed a process for trading crypto. He also is leveraging off his daily fantasy expertise. He was doing all these really interesting professional online poker and everything like that. So how did you guys meld these two different skill sets, which are really different? You're like a people person. I'm not saying James is not. He's a, a wonderful guy, but he's most comfortable, I think, with numbers. We're always evolving our process, yeah. but being good at venture, I think, is two parts. You need to pick well and you need to price well. But then once you make an investment, you're in like a 10-year relationship. My model has always been a lot of VCs make their money the day that they write the check. And I feel like I make it for the next 10 years. Yeah. I'm an operator by nature. And so like I'm uncomfortable with the idea that you would just write a check and sit back. But I think that's a lot of how the industry has typically worked. Was that easier to do at the level of angel investing that you were doing at? Once you institutionalize the process, now you're running a business. You've raised a lot of capital from, it could be high-profile individuals, it could be from different organizations. And I definitely want to hit on this, the difference between angel investing and institutionalized VC, which you and James have just launched a new fund called Gutter Capital, correct? And you're already deploying some capital. And I'm just curious how we go from, you said, 100 checks and dozens of advisory relationships at the time where you didn't have a full-time gig, if you will, to this transition towards VC, because I know you really debated whether it was something you wanted to do. You really liked the touchy-feely aspect of the early stage advising and angel investing. In a lot of ways, when I left WeWork, there was a few companies that I started to take on advisory roles at, and then naturally we decided to buy up bigger positions there. And so really like over the last two years, we've kind of iterated into the model that we have now, which is investing super early, partnering super close with founders, helping to build out early teams. We also had the happy 
coincidence that when WeWork imploded, they spun out the assets of Managed by Q, and my entire team walked out the door. And I would say the best thing that we built at Managed by Q was a team of 200 plus people. And so now about, I would say, close to a quarter or third of those people work in gutter capital companies, either in the historic portfolio or in our current portfolio. But that predates the raising of the fund. And we basically realized at the end of last summer, for the amount of capital we were putting in and the amount of work we were doing, it just didn't make sense not to own more of these businesses because we'd get them to a really good place. And then we'd introduce them to our friends who have seed funds and they would do the round. Right. And so we'll still collaborate with other funds, but you know, we want to own a bigger part of the company ourselves. Yeah. And how much did New York City play into this? Because from a geographic focus, I'm assuming that a lot of the companies that you're advising and angel investing were in and around you. You have a great network. Here, as you're deploying capital for gutter, are you primarily focused in New York? And the other thing is the migrations from the pandemic, it seems like everyone and their mother left Silicon Valley and went to obviously Austin and Miami. But New York to me, New York City in particular, seems to be the single largest beneficiary of that. Yeah, I mean, folks have gone to Austin or Miami, but you have to remember that most founders are not worried about their tax basis. It's not an issue that crosses their mind. And so they want to be where life is and where culture is. And unfortunately for San Francisco, a lot of people have left. A lot has died down there. And I think, yeah, New York is definitely the big winner. I think for us, probably half the portfolio is in New York now. Some of the folks were New Yorkers and they left because they're a little bit later in life. I think we kind of got lucky. Ten years ago, it wasn't a popular opinion that it was a good idea to be in New York. And now it's like every other week. A VC from San Francisco is trying to spend more time in New York and wants to host a dinner or whatever. And it's nice to have everybody here. So aside from the benefits of just a lot of really interesting founders and just an ecosystem as far as venture is concerned and some of the things that people are focused on, it seems like this is kind of the center of the universe for Web3 and crypto and fintech. What are some of the focuses of Gutter? Like, do you have a mission, if you will, some of the sort of industries that you really want to focus on where you think your expertise, yours and James, really sync up pretty well with? For better or for worse, we have not taken the bait on Web3 and crypto. It's just not what we do. We really try to focus on investing in founders who are solving problems related to affordability and accessibility, economic mobility, and climate and sustainability as pertains to the average American. We're drawn to mission-driven founders, and we think there's a lot of big, meaty problems to solve that are going to play out over the next 10 years. And while there may be interesting things in crypto and Web3, like these big existential human problems are not going away. Wait, so social tokens don't fix any of those problems? I'm not an expert. Okay, fair enough. And I'm kidding in a way. All right, so those are some lofty verticals, if you will. You're getting done raising your first fund here. I know that it's gone very well, and I can just speak firsthand about that. And I've listened to a bunch of your investor presentations with mutual friends or LPs, that sort of thing. Do you get pushback because there's a lot of really shiny objects about there that a lot of new funds that are focused on? And I'm just curious, when you say those things, they sound really serious, like those sorts of verticals. And so do LPs see those and say, oh, well, that's not going to be nearly as exciting five, 10 years down the road than some of the things that all these folks down in Miami or Austin are focused on? Yeah, it requires a commitment to your convictions because we do hear constantly, what's your Web3 strategy? Are you doing any crypto? And there's a lot of people that you talk to that, especially like fund of funds institutional LPs, they've already worked with a lot of generalist managers, and now they're looking to add crypto or Web3 exposure to their portfolio, which doesn't bode well to us. One, we want to solve real problems that impact real people. Like, I've got a lot of things I could be doing. I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning if I didn't feel like we were working on really meaningful problems for people. And two, I just think that over the next 10 years, it's unclear to me that crypto and Web3 are going to be the big stories. What is clear to me is electrification of the economy, upskilling and reskilling workers, rebuilding the industrial workforce. 
income inequality. Like these are issues that are not going away. And if they're not solved, we're going to have like much bigger issues. How does that meld with the idea of finding businesses that are optimizing towards creating really valuable businesses? Because it almost seems in some ways that income inequality, how do you make money as a startup on income inequality or focused on those sorts of issues? So I can speak to the electrification thesis as a big one. It's like there's just unbelievable amount of capital that needs to be deployed. Take heat pumps, for example, which I feel like we've talked about before. We invested in a business in Massachusetts that's basically building a managed marketplace for HVAC services nationally. The founding team already built a $100 million revenue home energy assessment business in Massachusetts. We made that investment in October, and earlier this quarter, Massachusetts announced a $10,000 incentive for installing a heat pump in every home. And so all of a sudden, there's this massive unlock of spending that's going to be subsidized by the state, and they're in pole position to actually capture all of that value by building a managed marketplace to deliver the service. So in every one of these categories, if you take the industrial workforce, average age is something like 45. Most of them are going to retire in the next 10 years. They're not being replaced at a fast enough rate. There's a huge opportunity for someone who figures out how to train these people and put them into well-paying jobs. The employers are going to pay for it. You just need to figure out how to do it. Sounds like this would be a really good pillar of a political platform at some point in the future if you ever dust off your political ambitions there, Dan. Now, I'm just saying it's really interesting to hear you talk about electrification, leveling the playing field for workers. There's money in that. When you go back to your Managed by Q days, you created something that solved a lot of problems for a lot of different touch points. And so I guess when you're thinking about your domain expertise in some of these spaces where a lot of venture firms are not focused on because they're not the sexiest thing right now, your point about the unlocks. There's lots of unlocks to happen. And one of the things that I know going back to, again, the business that you built, thinking about workers and workers' rights, you've been really critical of a lot of some of the most, I guess, popular sort of investments in the last 10 years when you think about the gig economy and what that means and kind of built on the back of workers in a way. Actually, this goes back, Dan, to a Medium post in September 2020. And here's a quote here. And you were talking about Uber in particular, but you were talking about the plight of the gig worker here. You said Uber has written millions of lines of code of software, but none of it changes the reality that someone has to drive you from A to B and that that person needs to feed their family and pay rent. If lower prices mean depriving workers of basic benefits of employment and other protections designed to shield our most vulnerable workers, then perhaps Uber should reconsider consider certain aspects of the operation that cannot operate profitably. Okay. So we just talked about, these are some shiny objects. There were some of the biggest venture exits on the planet, but these are massively unprofitable businesses. They can't even forecast when they get to normal gap profitability. It's no time in the near future. Public markets have rewarded them the same way that private markets have. And your point here is that these businesses which have no path to profitability, are built on the plight of workers, and they don't take into account anything as it relates to them. And go back to probably around the time when you were an early founder. Remember that video of Travis Kalanick on stage somewhere where he said something like, oh, don't worry about the workers. We're going to be automating all those jobs. He kind of said the quiet thing out loud, right? Totally. And I think like he always believed that. And in a lot of ways, I feel like Travis has more integrity. Because he said it from the get-go. Yeah, he's never like deluded anyone. He's always been pretty real about where he stands. I think the new management, you could make different arguments. I think in the case of like an Uber Eats or a DoorDash, who benefits and who is harmed? And when you have a business model that makes life worse for the restaurants, taking 30% of every check, and makes life worse for the drivers. Now they're not allowed to use the bathroom, whatever. They don't have benefits. They're not employee of the restaurant. 
and the consumer is indifferent. It's hard for me to see a real business in the long run, and it seems like the only people who benefit are the people who work at Uber. A very small percentage of the people who work at Uber, to be very clear. But so you're saying that when you're thinking about some of the verticals that you're most focused on, you're not interested in businesses like this, that they know... That are extractive. Yeah, they're extractive. They're taking value from an existing value chain that's like not fundamentally broken. There is no unlock. Let's be really clear here. The consumer benefits. But when the venture subsidy goes away, they're taking that from someone. So that's going to be a mantra, though, of gutter. Things that your check is subsidizing is not interesting to you. Yeah, I mean, we're looking to create value in the true sense of the word. So on the workforce angle, we're investors in a business called Faraday Careers that helps for HVAC companies to find and train new workers. So take someone from literally zero experience in HVAC through a six-month boot camp to get their EPA 608 certification. And in this case, because those people fully trained are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars to an HVAC provider, they're willing to pay a couple grand per person to place them. And it's a super efficient model. We're doing the same thing with a company called Satellite, which does essentially the same thing for training non-traditional sales talent. So you might have someone who's working a retail job in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Why couldn't she be an SDR for a sales company just because she didn't go to liberal arts school and move to New York City? And in fact, a lot of those people are even better sales talent. So those are businesses where we're aligning the incentives with the individual, with the employer, and also you're solving for a major labor market inefficiency. We don't have apprenticeships really in this country. And so you're able to give the employer the opportunity to actually pay for us to go find the candidate, give them best-in-class training, and then give them support once they start in the new role. And all of a sudden, you have someone who's now a much more productive contributing member of society, so everybody wins. All right, let's zoom out a little bit, because for me, as a talking head on CNBC, and I do a lot of pods, we're spending a lot of time talking about a really wonky topic, which is inflation. And one of the stickiest aspects of inflation right now, this morning, as we're taping this, we got a CPI reading at 41-year highs. You have to go back to the early 80s, where you see high single digits, and CPI is the consumer price index, okay? Now, one of the things that's being explained away is like, okay, well, that's good. You know why? Because we've seen wage inflation. So I'm just curious, wages, which tend to be stickier, so oil prices will come down. Car prices will come down. Wages that have gone up are likely to stay up. I'm curious how that factors into some of the things that you think about retooling the workforce. My view on it is it's a huge positive. I think the lower tier of workers in this country have gotten a raise in real terms for the first time since the 1980s. So it's long overdue. I don't view wage inflation of low-income workers as a major driver of broad-based inflation. I think supply-side disruptions are probably much more the culprit. And I think that's pretty well studied at this point. I think it becomes one of many sort of factors that people like to point to. And I think people that don't want to see workers get a raise are going to point to that as a driver of inflation. I just don't think that that's true. It's just crazy. Who doesn't want to see workers get a raise? When you think about it, there's a lot of massive companies in America that have caught a lot of heat for opposing, let's say, unionization. We know that Amazon is opposing different efforts, Starbucks, the same thing. And listen, you can criticize Amazon a lot about a lot of things. I'll just tell you, They've been raising the minimum wage for their workers. They've been offering them services. It's one of the reasons why I think it's really interesting where they hadn't passed that, what was it in Alabama? There was a factory down there that was trying to go, and it didn't pass. And maybe there's a lot of workers, and this goes back to like AB5 in a little bit in California. Is it clear that workers overwhelmingly want these sorts of protections, or do they want a bit more autonomy as it relates to on-demand? Or maybe they're perfectly happy with a lot of the offerings that a company like Amazon has. Obviously, the people of New York City have spoken. They wanted a union. They got a union. They voted overwhelmingly, too. I think some of the facts are very concerning. Like, if you look at the incidences of musculoskeletal injuries in an Amazon fulfillment center compared to the average U.S. employer, it's like a factor of 10. Those are places where unions, I think, are really valuable. 
Is that going to be like a drag on efficiency? Yeah, but you don't have people getting like crushed by machinery. It's a pretty good incentive. Okay, so clearly we're having a new industrial revolution and some of the same issues that the turn of the century in 1900 that have happening. But one of the things I think is really interesting prior to the pandemic, one of the big concerns about companies like Amazon wasn't worker safety, it was workers being displaced by automation. And so we were talking about can our low-end workers earn a living wage? Because if automation's coming, we were talking about universal basic income and stuff like that. I'm just curious, once the pandemic's in the rearview mirror, do we get back to worrying about automation displacing low-end jobs? I think it's a little bit of a false choice. And obviously, there are very specific examples where if a worker is replaced by a new piece of machinery, in my opinion, the employer should be willing to do something other than tell them to have a nice life. And that's the benefit of unions. Those are the types of things they negotiate. But I think the reality is we are on a forward march of productivity. It's a huge positive for humanity if it's managed well. And we need to welcome automation, but at the same time, educate people so they can be productive, contributing members to the modern economy. And that might mean working alongside the machines, maintaining the machines, writing the software for the machines. My sense is there's plenty for people to do where the more fundamental issues are, are around education. That's a great point. And there's a case study, I guess, about when ATMs were introduced in the banking system. And you probably quoted that before. I mean, banking jobs and actual branches have increased year over year ever since that. Well, listen, it's really nice to know that there are gutter capitalists like you out there trying to solve problems, not creating some new delivery app or some picture app. I have the benefit of chatting with you quite often. I got a lot of gray hair. I'm probably old enough to be your dad, but you've been a tremendous advisor to me and what we're trying to do with Risk Reversal Media. I've seen it firsthand, and I've heard your story to investors, pretty sophisticated people. And I think it's really good to know that investors aren't only looking to invest in funds that are going after the, the, the shiniest things out there. And I think it is also important to note that James and I, in our historic investments, have had some of the best performance out there. We're not running a nonprofit. We view this as there are amazing opportunities to both do the right thing and make a ton of money. And those are the opportunities that we seek out. Yeah, well, that's not something you hear too much from the VC community. Well, listen, Dan, you've been a great friend, and you're obviously one heck of a gutter cap. Is that what you guys call You call yourself gutter capitalists here? Is that what we're doing here? Sure. Well, it's on your Twitter bio. Well, yeah, it's a little tongue-in-cheek. Is that what you're doing? Well, listen, we hope you come back. We're really glad that you joined us here. Next time, Guy Adami will be here with his main man, Bear Market, Matt Damon. Thanks, Dan Turan, for being with us. All right, my pleasure. Thanks. 